0: The price has been an inability to connect to communities and understand what people need. And the point that you made that it's been about the virus and not about the people for a very long time. So we would be really um, negligent if we failed to take advantage of this opportunity and this awareness that we need to redesign our system so that they're people focused. So let's let's stop talking about looking for COVID. Let's start talking about people presenting with respiratory symptoms and what we do with them.
1: Hello, and welcome to Contain This. Today, we're speaking to two people at the forefront of the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic, two people who bring very different perspectives to the discussion. Dr. Bill Rodriguez is the Chief Executive Officer of the Foundation for Innovative Diagnostics, commonly known by its acronym, FIND. Dr Fifa Rahman is the Principal Consultant at Matahari Global Solutions. She's a Special Advisor at Health Poverty Action and a Permanent Civil Society Representative on the WHO Access to COVID Tools Accelerator, or ACT-A. Both Bill and FIFA agree that unprecedented international coordination and the rapid development of health technologies, mostly diagnostics, have been vital to the pandemic response, but that too often these measures have been implemented without sufficient input from the people who need them. In this episode, Bill and FIFA share their views on decentralising decision-making in global health in order to empower people and communities to make the decisions they want to make about their health needs. I hope you enjoy the episode. So I want to start with a question to each of you, if you could share some of your personal reflections from the past two years of the pandemic in terms of your view, Bill, from within a global health organisation and yours, FIFA, really taking some of the more grassroots or country-level perspectives. Let's start with FIFA.
2: So um, I think the first thing is probably about the value of the multi-stakeholder response, And, and I take... CSO perspectives and bring them to the global. side I don't think I come from 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 just one perspective, but um one thing about a, a multi-stakeholder response is that you get to leverage upon the inherent qualities of each of these organizations. Um, and, and and that's reflected in in a number of examples, but i'll I'll, I'll, I'll make it brief. Um, some organizations simply aren't agile enough to to respond quickly. And others are. Um, And in a situation like a pandemic, um, it's incredibly important that you have these different actors to keep each other accountable. Um, In the case of self-tests, we had guidelines come out incredibly late. And I I think that um, the agility of different members in the multi-stakeholder response I think brought up lessons for for agencies that perhaps weren't used to doing things so quickly or, or were more bureaucratic, and there are some agencies who who don't think trips flexibilities are important, um, and others like the WHO who will who will champion them. Um, so so there's there's that, and and um, uh, and of course even in in organizations like the WHO, the diagnostics expertise is just isn't as robust as FIND. So you have a real value in in organizations such as FIND being there. Um, And and the second point um, is probably that paternalism still exists in, in global health. And that's something that we really need to sort because um in access to self-tests globally for example and, and this translated to access to self-tests on the ground in lmics and, and a difficulty in tackling conservatism vis-a-vis pcr and and, and self tests at home is that um at the highest levels there was still there was still a lot of conservatism paternalism um about Oh, we should only, uh, you know, we don't know if people in, in uh, low and middle countries will know how to read their self-test. We don't know whether they'll be able to link to treatment, which, of course, is is really sort of colonial and also inaccurate because people in Africa and, and, and Asia have been HIV self-testing for a while, have been pregnancy self-testing for, for decades. Um, this isn't a situation where people don't know what they're doing. Um, and that implication, as well as the concern that, you know, the the ideology that it's not it's not your right to health to test, which is wrong, of course. It is it is our right to health to know our status, right? Um, those ideologies still still persist at the high, highest levels and can be impediments to commodity deployment.
1: Thanks, FIFA. And and your reflections just remind me, I think we did start the covid response thinking about a pathogen instead of people and it changed quickly but potentially it's a learning for next time um, about where we start when we respond bill over to you for your reflections
0: thanks i think both of those comments are are on target so let me give you my perspective from where i sit inside a global health agency you know i'd say the 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 theme over the past few years that i've seen is this issue of centralized Processes, decision-making activities versus decentralized, and you can quickly relate that to colonialism and 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 the legacy and echoes of colonial approaches to, to global health. Um, you know, one one point that the the Act Day principles and that the hub is fond of making is that um, there's been an unprecedented degree of cooperation among the leaders of the major global health agencies. And and they'll point to the fact that for the past two years now, two-plus years, every Thursday night for 60 to 90 minutes, the principals of the major agencies involved in in the COVID response will meet and, and talk and discuss ideas. And every other week, it's open to the broader community and the CSOs like FIFA and others. And then every other week, it's a tighter group. And the, the plus side of that is it has been unprecedented. There's a degree of communication and cooperation and a joint agenda among the principles of the global health agencies that have that's never been there before. What's the downside? It's everything that FIFA just said, which is um, you've got a small group of people, mostly European, mostly white men, sitting in a room and, and trying to make decisions on behalf of the global community without insufficient understanding of what's happening at community level without sufficient input. And so there have definitely been real pluses and benefits from having that ability to convene centrally on a regular basis. But the price has been an inability to connect to communities and understand what people need. And the point that you made that it's been about the virus and not about the people for a very long time. And I think you know, the self-testing agenda is a good one that FIFA brought up because it sort of highlights all of the um, successes of the COVID response and all of the failures of the COVID response in one test. And I would say the most recent discussions around self-testing that are, that are just as disconcerting of, as the fact that it took, you know, almost two years to get a policy um, a recommendation out is that the discussion now is, well, if people are using self tests, we're not collecting data on what's happening to the pandemic. Um, and, and again, there's a discussion that's coming centrally about the, the collection of that data to track the virus is more important than people taking control over their own health and knowing what to do and how to respond to, um, you know, uh, symptoms and an infection and protect their families and communities. And again, it's this sense that we have we have centralized decision making without sufficient um, input uh, from from people who are who are affected. So I think we have to figure out how to take what we've been able to build and build on to. Um, really dramatically accelerate the availability of of tools and and not just tests but vaccines and and to some extent therapeutics, but figure out how to embed it in what people need and what communities need and not in what health agencies like like find and our partners need. And that's the challenge. It's it's a difficult one. Um, but we need to figure out how to how to decentralize all of the activities in global health and not keep them centralized in in you know a small group of people.
1: So just to continue on that theme then, Bill, when you think about FIND as an organisation over the last two years, you've touched on being part of an um, important coordination mechanism, but how have you tried to overcome some of, those, uh, some of that disconnect that you point out about decisions and then the people that are affected by them? How have you changed as an organisation?
0: You know, FIND came into this, into ACT-A and, and the effort to respond to COVID as, as a much smaller organization that was sort of less centrally involved in, in major programs and major decisions. And in part, that's because diagnostics have sort of been in the background behind vaccines and, and therapeutics and, and health systems strengthening um, outside of diagnostics. And then COVID revealed, I think, to everyone how critical testing is for um, good decision making for people to protect themselves for for resource allocation. So fine was put in this new role of prominence because we have the technical expertise in in diagnostics. And as FIFA mentioned, we were small enough to be nimble enough to be able to respond to the needs, um, maybe more than other agencies that are um, a little more bureaucratic. Um, so we've had, to, we've had to grow that muscle. We've had to build that muscle of how to engage um, globally all at once on a, on a daily basis, and that meant hiring new people with new skills and focusing more on some of the downstream activities around um, uh, you know, identifying community-based needs, identifying novel strategies for uptake of tests in different settings, and working close, more closely with partners on the ground than we'd had to do in the past at FIND. To be able to make sure we didn't get caught up in the wave of um, sort of centralized decision making we've had to rely heavily on our, our country teams and on our partners and so i think um, we just didn't have the staff and the in the presence um, to be able to know what was happening and what what um, you know what government officials needed what community-based organizations needed what was happening at clinic level other than in a few settings. So one thing we did is we relied heavily on our India team, which is our our by far biggest country team who do have a lot of local operations, mostly in tuberculosis and hepatitis C um, and AMR control. So that informed a lot of our thinking. And then we really tried to identify what are the equity issues. We try to maintain an equity framework around all the aspects of of, um, testing from R&D to manufacturing, To regulatory authorization uh, to training to market development and demand generation and that led us to you know we certainly relied on on cso organizations and and other partners to help us understand what they were seeing on the ground we tried to track equity in different ways about who has access to tests and is that an equity issue but also where does manufacturing take place and is that an equity issue and then we try to make investments to improve equity and um, and that included not just you know cash investments and new programs but to try to put our time and people to address you know regulatory barriers that were equity issues policy barriers that were equity issues and I, you know honestly I can't say that we succeeded um, but that was the effort we made to make sure that as a small organization that was moving in a in a rapid way into a new role that we didn't lose sight of, what the what the goal was, you know, which is to help individuals and people and communities lead healthier lives, and in this case, to get through the pandemic. But it's it's hard when you're when you're sitting in Geneva to make sure you're listening to what's happening on the ground. I think that's a problem we all face.
1: Um, Bill, just a, to help us with a bit of perspective, when you say a small organization in global health, roughly yeah. how many people work for FIND at the moment?
0: Uh, I'll I'll, also, yeah, before the pandemic, I think we had um, 80 people, 85 people or so in Geneva and about 60 or 70 in in India. And now we have over 200 people um, uh, across a number of countries based out of the Geneva office, but sitting and working in, in multiple countries and about 100 people in India, 80 to 100. So we've sort of tripled in size in the past years. And now we're you know, a hundred and fifty million dollar organization with with two hundred fifty to three hundred global staff.
1: FIFA, you've been an advisor, civil society advisor to ACT Day, but you've also been uh, in the field or overseeing some work assessing uh, access to rapid antigen tests and the degree of integration between COVID and TB services. What are some of your um, standout reflections on? you know, key findings of barriers to access or what has overcome them in the places that you've been working?
2: So I'm probably going to start with the fact that the WHO recommends um, that people seeking a test for screening, uh, for TB screening, um, also are offered um, a a COVID test. Um, And um, we found that in our work, you know, across a a number of countries in Africa and 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 a couple in asia where there wasn't really any momentum after that piece of paper was um issued so um that piece of paper was issued and and nobody really uh took up on it so it makes me think about the value of advocacy and the value of 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 civil society funding to to pressure governments to go like okay look the who has issued this, this document um we need to to integrate. Um, so, you know, everybody, I think a lot of donors are, are concerned about tracking advocacy because how, how do we do it? We don't know how to plot, but there are, you know, there there are lots of ways how to monitor impact from advocacy. And I, I don't think that should be an excuse to not fund advocacy, I think. Um, th- the next thing is about, um, you know, sort of conservatism about PCR is better like we've seen that in a number of places and and i think the arguments need to be uh pushed through through more with more clarity that yes of course pcr is more accurate but in in some of the areas we're working in it's taking four to five days uh, or, or more for for pcr results to reach the individual uh from from t- uh, time of collection of sample and in that time you know and th- these are educated lab experts or, or technical experts who 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 should really know better right um in those four to five days while someone's waiting for the result they could have um Infected a bunch of other people. So there's there's a greater value in doing a, a rapid antigen test uh, or, or um, whether professional use or self-test. And um, the, the public health value of that is something that needs to be communicated more to maybe conservative decision makers on the ground.
0: Could I, could I follow up on that with just a, a comment? You know, I mentioned earlier uh this tension between centralized. Processes and decision making decentralized, and um, you know I think one of the key lessons of of co- the COVID you know era, hopefully it's ending soon for as an acute pandemic, but um, but will be with us for a long time as a as a as a virus. I think one of one of the lessons is everything, almost everything we do in global health, um, the the policies, the financing mechanisms, the agencies and structures. Um, the approach to addressing um, health is is vertical, right? It's disease-focused and not people-focused. And um, and just this comment about TB and COVID testing that FIFA made, you know, I think we've learned, um, yeah, maybe there's a role for that in, in the kind of pandemic and in the, what we saw in the first year of, of COVID. But had we built systems that were people-focused from the beginning, and worried about when a patient comes in with symptoms or concerned or sick, how do we respond to their needs with the right set of tools, including tests of various kinds? Maybe we would have moved faster on, on self-testing. Maybe we would have moved faster to say, you have respiratory symptoms. We're going to look for all the things that could cause your respiratory symptoms, whether that's TB or COVID or RSV or influenza, in a comprehensive way based on understanding you know what's going on around us. And um, everyone has talked for years about integrating HIV and TB, you know, at the, at the molecular platform level, you know, let's use the same platform to test for HIV and TB, and it just hasn't happened. But that's because the systems are designed this way. So we, we would be really, um, I don't want to use the word criminally, but we would be negligent if we failed to take advantage of this opportunity and this awareness that we need to redesign our system so that they're people-focused. So let's not let's stop talking about looking for COVID. Let's start talking about people presenting with respiratory symptoms and what we do with them. And that's going to be different than sending them to a PCR lab to test them for COVID if we're, if we're, if we're designed on a people-centered um, approach.
1: So let's take that a bit further then, because with when we step that idea out a bit, It does force us to come and think about, well, what does that look like from an institutional support? Now we're in the realm of talking about universal health coverage, basic packages of care, robust levels of health service delivery, and integrated diagnostics, as an example. And so I'm just really interested in your candid reflections on the practical next steps towards that type of change, given the organizations that we are all supportive of and a part of.
0: Yeah. So our head of global health security at fine, Dan Bausch, he's fond of saying, you know, um, people talk about pandemic preparedness. You know, that's what we hear is is kind of the, the term that everyone talks about these days. Those of us who've been working in pandemic preparedness for 20 years, we use a different term. We call it primary healthcare strengthening, right? It's the same thing. And I think what it looks like is essentially to say if we want to prepare for the next COVID, whether it's SARS-CoV-3 or, or some other virus, we need to actually invest in primary health care. So what does that mean? You know, it means actually coming up with a basic social insurance mechanism for, for every country so that there's a, a plan to fund it. There needs to be essential packages around, um, around disease areas, but more specifically around what treatments need to be available, what tests need to be available, how do we integrate um, uh, prevention programs, uh, whether it's screening programs for cervical cancer, or immunization for childhood diseases. We need to have that approach and we need to recognize that if we do that and we consider what are the implications for surveillance and response to the next pandemic, we'll be in a much better position. So we have to have that discussion instead of talking about pandemic funds and, and where the money's going to go for new vaccines for um, disease X, which are hugely important. But the priority needs to be, how do we improve primary health care with the right financing, the right um, mechanisms, and the right approach so that all of these agencies that have their different tools can develop them toward that end? And that's a discussion that, I mean, I think Tedros tried to begin it before the pandemic and then was derailed by the pandemic. But I'm hopeful that we'll see global leadership focused on that issue and a frank discussion around what are the costs, how do we fund it? What comes from global agencies? What's funded domestically? How do we make sure the tools we're developing are geared toward that? How do we train staff and make sure that the community-based treatment programs and the community-based clinics have what they need to be the, the true front line of primary health care while in the background being ready for the next pandemic? We have to have a different conversation, I think is the answer.
1: what's your perspective on that question?
2: I agree um, completely on the health system's primary health care point. Um, and in fact it's one of our demands that we're making to the g20 and and to to the who in these discussions on the future pandemic response is that health systems and primary health care and, and, and universal health coverage need to be uh, central to any future response and not ancillary, which is what we saw in the COVID response. I mean, in the ACT Accelerator, there was so little funding for the health systems uh, connector, which is the sort of pillar that, that was supposed to tackle health systems issues. Um, but also, there was a lack of organization around health systems, right? And And those conversations didn't happen, and they, they should have, because we saw health systems decimated during COVID. Um, and it, it's definitely something that we want more centrally featured in, in, in the future pandemic response. But we also want to see financing change, because what the situation is now with, with health systems and primary health care is that they're, they're being funded through disease-specific uh, funding. So, you know, governments and donors give um hiv funding and expect that's addressed through there and i i, I think it needs to be i mean that could still happen uh, but but there also needs to be uh funding specifically for for primary health care and, and and health systems and, and named as such uh to place the emphasis there um so i'd like to see see that that change and in terms of uh, uh you know what best practices we need to bring is is it, it really feeds upon what bill said about about think you know structuring things around people and bringing bringing services to people and whether that means uh you know the sort of boxes that they had in Malaysia that had um um, um pulse oximeters in masks in rapid tests in you know and 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 send those out to people um and and whether that should be combined with other health services as well um or through community health workers in in rural parts of Africa and and you know we know that 14 percent of only 14 percent of community health workers in Africa are salaried so whether it means creating funds to be able to salary community health workers who know the culture, who know the nuances on the ground, to be able to go to the elderly lady who lives in a rural area and say, hey, have you been been vaccinated? Do you want a COVID test? You know, what other problems are you facing? Um, You know, these are all things that we need to seriously tackle in in the future pandemic response.
1: And I think we also have to, uh, we haven't really... Got the best mechanisms on the financing primary health care and the domestic resource mobilization and what's the right type of um, system support, be it loans, be it grants, be it long-term health system strengthening projects, all of these ideas force us into a conversation of better solutions where the donor dollar is tiny compared to the resources required for primary health care. But it's one that I agree we shouldn't be shying away from trying to improve our collective approach to it. Can I take a turn left to back to technology, which feels like an odd turn to be taking now, but it comes back to the idea of innovation in FINE's title um, about some of the exciting or novel developments that maybe inch us a bit closer to a patient-centred approach, um, at least at the diagnostic interface.
0: You know, when you think about why primary health care has, has been underinvested in and under-supported, part of it, as, either as a cause or a consequence, is most, most frontline health workers at the community level or at the clinic level just don't have the right tools, right? They don't have enough tools to be able to understand what's happening to the patient in front of them, and they're left, you know, with a lot of uh, difficult choices about do I use an antibiotic or not? Is this COVID or not? Is this TB or not? And what do I do? So, what we've seen in the past years is when you put resources into R&D, how fast you can develop new products. You know, the first PCR based tests for COVID were, were available commercially within six days of the virus being identified, right? Which is unprecedented. The first rapid tests within eight months, and that's unprecedented if you think about malaria tests and HIV tests. And then multiplex molecular tests, that could find COVID and something else were available within the first 12 to 14 months. So when there's funding available and the, and the products are clear, the needs are clear, we can do a lot very quickly. What that's also meant is we've seen two major investments um, in two different platforms um, that, have, that have really borne fruit. The first is um, in molecular multiplex testing. Well, what does that mean? Taking the power of PCR and being able to say from a single sample from a patient who's presenting in front of me, I can identify from between four and in the most promising platforms, 27 pathogens at a low price point, you're know, talking about below $10 at, at, at market launch and, and ideally getting down to roughly $5 per sample or per test um, at volume production. I can say, what does this patient have in front of me? you know, And, and I can make that assessment in a simple instrument that's used at primary care, if um, you know, the next generation of the Gene Expert platform, for those familiar with that, or similar platforms. So that's incredibly exciting and tr- potentially transformative for primary care to be able to manage infectious diseases by saying, I have a patient with respiratory symptoms. I'm going to run a test for you know, roughly $5 and identify a pathogen. I have a patient who looks like they may be sick with a febrile illness. I'm going to draw blood and see if they're sick. And, and and run that here if I have the ability to, to draw blood and, and process blood. All of that getting a result back in minutes to an hour instead of, you know, days to weeks. So those technologies are entering the market. If you're on the market now, we'll be seeing more and more of those technologies enter the market 2023, 2024. And by 2025, you know, ideally we should see um, a competitive marketplace for affordable tests that can make those determinations at the primary care level. Um, frontline clinics um, and certainly level one uh, you know, facilities and, and hospitals that have a basic laboratory that do glucose testing now or HIV testing now. So that's really an exciting investment that is poised to pay off. And now the question is, can we can we integrate that that kind of technology into our primary care system? Then the second investment has been in, in digital health and digital tools. And so the ability to not only um, be able to generate information at the primary healthcare level, but to connect that information with um, deeper expertise, whether it's specialists in pediatrics or in gastroenterology or in neurology, who can immediately provide support to a frontline worker on what to do with that information. Clinical decision support tools, databases, where we now can track what's happening in different parts of a health system with better surveillance and allocate resources. All of that investment in the past few years, and it started pre-COVID, but was accelerated by COVID, now are really available so that frontline workers can can be connected in a different way to health systems. Again, we need to manage that um, that that tool and the power of that tool in a way that supports the needs of patients and, and health workers, but that investment will also transform primary health care. I'll say there's been a third investment in genomics and sequencing, which has allowed unprecedented tracking of, um, of COVID variants worldwide. It's now being applied to monkeypox variant monitoring. That's another tool that maybe has a role, I think, in surveillance and maybe someday will be appropriate for clinical case management for, Drug resistance for TB or um, or other diseases. I think we're not quite there yet with that technology, and we have to not um, overestimate what it's capable of doing on a day to day basis. But that's a third technology that, in the future, I think is going to be transformative. But those other two, molecular multiplex testing and digital tools, are currently tools we need to plan for their immediate use at at the primary healthcare level.
1: So. Coming to you then, FIFA, Bill's left us with three innovations to be hopeful for. I wonder if you could close us off today about what you're hopeful about taking forward from the pandemic from your perspective.
2: So um, I'm hopeful that that diagnostics is now sexier to donors. <laughs> um, I, I think that... I think we've made a lot of noise about how it was just vaccines, 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 and I, I think, I, I, I hope that that consciousness is it has there or or at least is nascent, and you know one of the things that I feel, you know, sort of needs more attention going forward, and and I feel like the seeds are being planted as we speak, is that. With innovation and, of course, digital health is 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 so important going forward that that the human element be retained. And, and, and the example I'm thinking about is with thermal ablation cervical cancer in 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 some of um, in Zimbabwe and Mozambique in particular that these are important tools they 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 um, not just thermal ablation but the diagnostics also for, for cervical cancer right they they take a picture of the cervix and they send it to the to the ai tool for for analysis and, and and it sends back the result to the mobile phone to tell you whether you you've got precancerous cells or not the human element in in community health workers and the role of 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 them in understanding the, the cultural acceptability of tools the you know whether the mobile phone is owned by the male of the family who might get upset if his if his wife has pre-cancerous cells all of that you know the the sort of human element uh, of of knowing um the cultural nuances of a community and and the risks to a woman of, the, of of that you know that's quite important and the same applies to COVID right um the the community health worker will know um, and in Zimbabwe, we had we had community health workers working, you know, holding tablets and putting people's HIV self-test results in in this tablet and sending it o- away for for surveillance. All of these tools are, are are incredibly important, but also to to emphasize on the value of of the humans behind it.
1: So we at the Centre for Health Security had always found diagnostics sexy because I think we had been a partner of Find pre-pandemic um and and you know admire the nimbleness of the organization but we're an early partner there but can I thank you both for your time and perspectives today across so many important and current discussions we're having now about what we need to keep and what we need to improve both from how we work from the field right up until um the organizations and the places we work to continue to improve the chance that next time we do it better. So thanks so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Dr. FIFA Rahman and Dr. Bill Rodriguez about global health lessons from the COVID pandemic. I'm Stephanie Williams, Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security. On this season of Contain This, we have talked to a number of guests about what the global health community got right and wrong during the pandemic. A recurring theme has been focusing too much on the virus instead of the people. As Bill said, we would be negligent if we failed to take advantage of this opportunity and this awareness that we need to redesign our system to be more people-focused. He and FIFA gave a number of suggestions for how this can be done in the future. Contain This is produced by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security, hosted by Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. You can follow us on Twitter at CentreHealthSec.